This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. This week's sermon is by John Perrine and is part five of Revealing the Heart of God, A Journey Through the Minor Prophets. Good morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is John Perrine. I am the pastoral resident here at Church of the Resurrection, where I have been training for the last year about now to uh, prepare for a call to church planting. So I'm happy to uh, be with you this morning and looking forward to continuing to get to know you. Uh, This morning we have a bit of a special treat for you in our series on the Minor Prophets. Uh, Jonah is somewhat unique. Jonah uh, really, as we've been wrestling with a story, is a story about us being a fleeing people. Uh, We tend to flee. And so Jonah's going to dive deep into what our fleeing looks like, that we tend in Jonah to flee by escape, and we tend to flee God with our anger. So in order to unpack this, because so many of us know some details from the story of Jonah, what we wanted to do this morning is to have you experience the whole book, experience the whole book. So my lovely wife, Jenna, has joined me, and she's going to be reading all four chapters. So there's nothing to be worried about. It's just two pages. We're not going to be here until uh, one in the afternoon. So my wife, Jenna, is going to read for us, and we're going to dive into this book. Jenna, would you start by reading Jonah 1? The Book of Jonah. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee, to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give us a thought that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up. And hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, 
for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So as I mentioned before, there's, there's really two acts to Jonah, two movements, and they're all about us being a fleeing people. In this first act, Jonah tries to flee by escaping to Tarshish from the call of God. Now, as I was reflecting on uh, memories of fleeing in my life, I, I continue to recall my childhood dog. If any of you had dogs, I had the privilege of a dog named Snuggles growing up. That's what my family chose to call her. Uh, we also had a dog named Snowflake, which was brown, and a guinea pig named Wiggles, and another guinea pig named Giggles. So that's a little snapshot into what I was growing up with. But our dog Snuggles uh, distinctly Every time uh, we would have this good intention, Snuggles, you're not smelling great. It's time for you to have a bath. We're going to clean you. We're gonna, it's even probably going to feel nice. We're going to massage the shampoo into you. And yet every time Snuggles would notice us moving with her name on our lips towards the bathroom, she would bolt. She would go hide in rooms of the house that weren't often frequented. A few times we found her in our fireplace, just sort of curled up, hoping that we wouldn't catch her. And when you finally would grab Snuggles and bring her into the bathroom, she would sit resentfully, stiff as a board, the entire bath, almost just to prove her point. She was not happy about following our call. So that's what I think of when I think of fleeing. Uh, as, as we encounter the story of Jonah, we find a man, more specifically a prophet, who's fleeing God's call. If uh, you look back at verse 1, God calls to Jonah, arise, go to the city of Nineveh. And instead, Jonah arose and flees to Tarshish. Now, two things to know about Nineveh and about Tarshish. Nineveh, in Jonah's time, was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire, the world empire at that point. And the Assyrians were particularly known for being a pretty nasty people. Whenever the Assyrians would capture, would invade, uh, would defeat an army, we have these murals of the Assyrians doing terrifying things like burying soldiers in live graves, pulling body parts off, and even impaling heads on stakes. And the reason that we have these grotesque murals uh, that we know about them is because the Assyrians would hang them in Nineveh, in their capital, just to sort of warn and glory in how they treated their enemies. So nobody, nobody really wants to go to Nineveh. Nobody really wants to wake up in the morning and hear God's call is that you're going to go and preach judgment to Nineveh. So instead, Jonah flees to Tarshish. Now, Tarshish for us as modern listeners doesn't necessarily stand out. Maybe you've heard Tarshish is the opposite direction of Nineveh. That's certainly true. Tarshish was probably a place where Jonah was hoping God might not know about him or might be able to get away from him. But the thing that really fascinated me as I was diving into this text is that I found out most scholars would agree Tarshish 
is a coastal town on the beaches of Spain. So just think about this for a second. On the one hand, God calls Jonah as he wakes up, Jonah, go to Nineveh. You know that place where they have billboards on the streets of grotesque images and mutilation? Or Jonah thinks to himself, I could go to Tarshish, the beaches. It's warm. It's sunny. It's where you retire. Tarshish is comfortable. Tarshish is cozy. Tarshish is where everybody wants to live. Tarshish is where you and I want to live, if we're being honest. I think if we were to think through what is our Tarshish, there's probably images that would come to mind for you. Maybe it's a nice beach house on Lake Michigan. Maybe it's a hefty 401k. Maybe it's kind of everyone, the kids all around. Maybe for you, it's, it's your Instagram life, the desires to look sophisticated and beautiful. Whatever it is, I think we all have that Tarshish that we often find ourselves tempted to flee to, to escape from the call of God. Yet, as Jonah goes to flee to Tarshish, he finds himself encountered by a storm. But this isn't just any storm. If you look, if you have your Bibles with me at verse 4 of chapter 1, text says something very specific. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. There was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break. The Lord pursues Jonah through a storm. It's a terrifying invitation to sit with for just a moment. It's a terrifying picture to go there with Jonah and imagine yourself on a ship where you feel the winds start to howl, where you see the waves starting to rise, where you start to feel your ship shaking underneath you. There's a couple of interesting details, I think, about this storm uh, that are relevant for us as we think about our own attempts to flee to escape to Tarshish, being met by these obstacles that the Lord is pursuing us with. First detail comes in verse 5. It says that the sailors, tailor, terrified by the winds, start hurling cargo back at God. It's almost comical. One commentator pointed out, the Lord hurls wind at the ship, and the sailors think, let's hurl cargo back at God into the sea. It's almost like when we find ourselves in these terrifying stormy encounters, we start wondering, what can we get rid of? What could we maybe sell off? What could we give away? Is there more tithing or more time or more resources that if we just invest over here, maybe this storm will go away? But the Lord continues his pursuit of Jonah through the storm. Another detail that happens in verse 5, it's interesting, is that we find somehow Jonah is asleep. Verse 5 says, Jonah's asleep in the bow of the ship. Jonah's asleep through the very storm that's meant to get his attention. Again, I find this interesting as you reflect on your own handling of storms in your life. Have you ever been tempted to just say, maybe I could nap this one out? Maybe if I just go back to bed for a little bit, maybe if I just numb out for a little bit longer, then maybe this whole thing will pass away. Jonah is asleep in the very storm meant to get his attention, but God does not relent in his pursuit of Jonah. Third, final detail to draw your attention to, takes place after all that dialogue, back and forth. The sailors want to know whose fault it is. They cast lots. They start interrogating Jonah, why, he, why his name has come up. Jonah says he needs to be thrown overboard. But the sailors do something interesting here. Verse 13, it says, Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not 
because the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Once again, how true this strikes me in times I've been met by a storm, that there's this feeling that if maybe I just rode a little extra hard and tried to go back to the way things were, the way things were before I was fleeing God's call, maybe if I just go back and reset, then all of this will go away. But the Lord does not relent in his pursuit of Jonah through the storm. So here, in Act 1, Jonah trying to flee God's call through escape, God has met Jonah in a storm. And I think at some point, Jonah had to have realized, at some point Jonah had to know that there was going to be no way out of this storm of his own efforts. There was no way that he could try harder to row back. There was no way that he could just go back to sleep. There was no way that Jonah could just cast enough cargo overboard. Instead, he needed to meet the God who was pursuing him in this storm. And so in this terrifying moment, to go back to Jonah's experience, standing there on the ledge, Jonah says, the only option I have is to be hurled into the sea for this all to end. That's it. That's all I've got. My fleeing has brought me here. And so Jonah, perhaps with the slightest amount of faith, perhaps with no faith at all, finally is cast down into the deep. But here, as we pause, chapter one, as chapter one ends, we're met by this wonderful, reassuring moment. The God who is so persistent of Jonah, even when he's fleeing, the God who's so persistent that he would pursue Jonah through a storm, that same God is so persistent in his pursuit of Jonah that he follows him in to the depths of the sea by appointing a great fish to swallow Jonah and preserve his life. So as we end, it would be easy at this point to think all is lost, and yet there's this, there's this sense, this wonderful invitation at the end of chapter 1 that God is willing to meet us even in the very depths of our ending. And so with that said, Jenna, would you continue reading Jonah 2? Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. So chapter 2 of Jonah invites us to sit 
in this strange moment, three days and three nights in the belly of a fish. And we hear Jonah offer forth a prayer to God in this moment, this complete, utter moment of Jonah's ending and brokenness. If, if I were to try to summarize this prayer from Jonah 2 in a sentence, I think it essentially boils down to this. When it comes to fleeing God, submission is Jonah's only hope of salvation. I think that's what re Jonah's realizing here in this prayer. Submission to God is Jonah's only hope of salvation. Uh, submission to a God who is merciful, submission to a God who is loving, submission to a God who maybe sees the bigger picture of Nineveh clearer than the small picture of comfort that Jonah had been longing for in fleeing to Tarshish. Submission is this moment when you turn from fleeing to finally embracing and following the call of God. And so as, as I was wrestling with this, this moment, this beautiful, broken moment of submission, I thought as I had been preparing the sermon that this moment really is about us in our jobs, in our callings, in our vocations. That, that to me was kind of where my mind went, that for those of us uh, who have been wrestling, have maybe been noticing God calling us towards something that seems painful, perhaps costly and challenging, that, that this invitation to submission, submission to a loving God as the only hope of our salvation, is what Jonah wants to invite you into. And, and perhaps that is the word that Jonah has for you this morning. But just a couple of days ago, my wife and I uh, were watching this Christian film. It's kind of a documentary called The Heart of Man. And in this documentary, the film uses a parable to explore sexual brokenness, and then it tells a bunch of men and women's stories of how they experience sexual abuse, uh, brokenness of all different kinds, and addictions. And I was struck as we just listened to story after story of a person who got found out in an affair and had really lost everything, or another person who was trapped, enslaved in their addiction, and finally came to this moment of the end of themselves. I was struck that their stories were actually Jonah's stories, that, that this call to submission from our fleeing, this call to submission from trying to escape. This call is actually at the heart of the depths of us in our own brokenness, in our own sin, whatever that cause, whatever that is, that we find ourselves in this moment confronted by the belly of a fish, having been cast down into the depths of the sea, that finally in our ending, we could yield and find the hope of salvation in God. I think this is why Jesus, centuries later, in a confrontation with the Pharisees, is going to point to the sign of Jonah, three days and three nights in the belly of a fish, as you heard in our gospel reading this morning. Uh, this submission, I think Jesus is saying to them, is your only shot at truly knowing the new life that God has for you. This moment of death, this moment of finding yourself at the belly of a fish, that's all you've got. That's the sign. That's, that's all God is going to give you to invite you into the heart of this life that God has planned for you. At some point, you're going to have to find the end of yourself sitting in the belly of a fish. And Jesus is going to model this very walk, this very submission to us, even to the point of death on a cross where he's praying in Gethsemane, not my will, but yours be done. Oh, your only hope for salvation, 
is through the submission that Jonah himself prays in the belly of a fish. So perhaps this morning, you've been fleeing God to escape. Perhaps there is for you is a picture of Tarshish somewhere in your heart that's been calling to you. And perhaps as you hear the word of God in Jonah, perhaps this morning is an invitation for you to finally turn from your fleeing in submission. I want to read Jonah's words one more time as an encouragement from verses 7 to 9 in chapter 2. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So here, the end of chapter 2, we have a profound gospel invitation that submission is your hope of salvation, that submission from fleeing to escape is the only chance you've got at finding new life in this world. Yet, it would be easy to think this might be the end of the story. However, Jonah continues in chapter 3 and 4 in the second act of his story with a different kind of fleeing. In fact, I think it's really helpful that Jonah is going to show us just because we start following God's call, it doesn't mean that there still isn't a part of who God is that we might not be trying to escape from. So with that said, Jonah, Jenna, would you continue reading Jonah 3? Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So here in Act 2 we find an interesting scenario. What happens if you've submitted this desire to flee from God through escape, but you still find yourself wrestling with the unexpected outcomes of following God's call? Here uh, in chapter 3, Jonah is going to follow God's call. He's going to go and preach this message of repentance. And amazingly, the entire city, this horrendous, wicked, terrifying city, 
from the smallest person up to the king themselves and all the way back down to the animals is going to engage sackcloth and ashes and repent. It's incredible. In verse 10, we hear this wonderful announcement. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Rather than judgment, judgment that was deserved, judgment that the people of Nineveh likely required, God turns in mercy and compassion because of their repentance. At first pass, this is wonderful news. Surely as we're reading this, your heart must say, this is great. Jonah did it. We've accomplished it. And yet things are maybe not as simple as they appear in Jonah's heart. As I sit with how Jonah must have felt experiencing this, uh, a few small examples from my own life come up. Maybe uh, for you, there is a moment where you've seen a child who was just acting terribly, and the parent, for some reason, in a moment of mercy, in a moment of grace, chooses to embrace them, chooses to forgive them, chooses to let them keep going. That small feeling that sort of wells up, that something's not right. Or maybe for you, it was a sibling at some point who was doing the wrong thing, who wasn't following orders, and you were, and the next thing you know, that sibling still has the reward. Or perhaps it's a coworker, a coworker who doesn't show up early, who isn't really pushing as hard as you are, and suddenly when promotion time comes around, they've got the new spot. These small, petty moments, I think, if we're honest, especially when we're tired, when we're vulnerable, when it feels like we've been working particularly hard, these small moments can start to build something within us, this sort of deep seed of doubt and distrust that maybe God isn't fully to be trusted. That seed that starts to grow through these small moments can start to blossom all the way up into this rage of anger, which we're about to encounter in Jonah. Jenna, would you continue reading verses 1 to 4? But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? It would seem that though Jonah has perhaps given up on his fleeing, trying to escape to Tarshish, Jonah hasn't stopped fleeing God through his anger. And it's amazing that Jonah, the same person who a chapter ago was praising God for saving him from the belly of Sheol, for saving him from certain death, is now saying, it would be better if you took my life. It's almost like what Jonah's really getting at here as he reflects on the Ninevites, is him saying, I would prefer to die than live in a world in which those Ninevites are forgiven. I think uh, as I reflect on this kind of anger, there is an infamous story of, in my family told of a trip we took to New York City when I was 13. Now, in my family, the rule around movies was that you couldn't see PG-13 movies until you were 13, so I had met the threshold, and I was very excited 
because Spider-Man 2 was coming out the week we were going to be in New York City, the place where it was filmed. For me, this was glorious. This was every 13-year-old's dream. And yet, there was a problem. I had a younger brother who was 11, was the youngest in our family, and my younger brother was always getting special privileges, just always special treats. And so my parents, in their grace, in their mercy, thought that they would bend the stipulation of being 13 to see a movie for my brother so that he could come in and that we together as a family could all go see this movie that I was so excited about. But they warned me, if I was not happy, if I was not okay with my brother seeing this movie alongside us, then we weren't going to be able to see it at all. It was just going to be too complicated, two parents, different kids wandering around. So I was furious. In fact, inconsolable. Uh, there are pictures from this trip of a furious John uh, sitting in a corner slouching. And in fact, to me, as, as these debates went back and forth, really the greatest kind of debates that a 13-year-old could muster, it was simply inexcusable. It was unfair at its deepest degree that my brother would get to experience the privileges I had worked so hard in my 13 years of life to gain. But as foolhardy as it sounds, uh, as my anger grew and grew throughout the day, we finally hit a point where I point blank refused. I said, I would rather not see this movie at all if it means that my brother gets to see it with us. And the trip ended with me angry, sullen, and my parents now having a lot of photos that they like to bring up uh, <laughs> to my shame. But as, even as I think about such a superfluous story, when you really get into it, I, I get the anger of Jonah. I think maybe if you were to search your own heart and those moments when you've been sitting with God, the, the amazing thing about Jonah's anger is that it's precisely when we're following God, it's precisely when we're the ones working so hard that our anger is stirred at this mercy or this graciousness or the unfairness of what God is allowing to take place in this world. So as we return to Jonah, we have an interesting scene in a story that already has been wonderfully strange and different. There's like a final case study that happens at the end of Jonah. What happens when we get angry with God? What will God do when we throw our fits, much like 13-year-old John in New York City? How does God respond even to us fleeing him in our anger? Jenna, would you finish reading Jonah 4? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he could see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah so that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when the dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, 
do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. So there it is. Jonah ends on a somewhat jolting cliffhanger. Jonah, of course, is furious. He's angry. Jonah, in fact, is arguing with the Lord of the universe about whether or not a plant should have survived. And yet, even as we look into the face of Jonah's anger, what strikes me more in this scene is that God is pursuing. God continues to pursue Jonah. He questions Jonah. He reasons with him. He instructs him. He even offers him this sign as a sort of instruction, a chance for Jonah to wrestle and work out this anger that he's feeling. So what's going on with this plant? What's the deal? It's kind of strange. comes at you unexpectedly. In essence, God is saying, let's analyze this anger of yours, Jonah. It represents your concern over your beloved plant, yet what did this plant really mean to you? Your attachment to it could not be very deep, for it was here one day and gone the next. Your concern, Jonah, was dictated by self-interest, not by a genuine love. Another way of saying it that I love that one commentator pointed out is that Jonah never had a devotion for the plant of a gardener. Jonah never had a chance to really understand what it takes to grow and to nourish and to prune and to care for something so tender and vulnerable. And what God is trying to say to Jonah is that if a gardener cares for his plant, how much more do I care for a city like Nineveh where I've known them, where I've worked for them, who've cost me so much effort, who I love and who I cherish, do you not think that my pain is so much more than yours, Jonah, when I contemplate their destruction? In essence, the sign of the plant is a sign pointing to God's concern for his creation as a gardener, a concern that runs so much deeper than our own self-interest, our own demanding questions, our own longing for understanding. God offers to Jonah this sign that says, I am the gardener caring for this creation. Do you really know my heart? Because if you did, you would know how much I care about these people. Is it possible that our anger is actually the best indicator of where we've been missing the heart of God as Father? That our anger, particularly the, for those of us who are following God's call, call, is often the very point we've missed God's gracious love. Yet if God doesn't leave us alone when we try to flee to escape, he certainly doesn't leave us alone as we flee him in our anger. He seeks us out, comes to us on the outskirts of town, reasons with us, sits and explains and explores. Yet intriguingly, the story ends open. Jonah does not give us the conclusion of how 
Jonah responds. And it's kind of interesting to think, what did Jonah do in response to the sign that God gave him? Did Jonah end up getting back on a ship, fleeing to Tarshish, the place he was longing for to escape? Or did Jonah remain stubbornly like my 13-year-old self, sitting on the outskirts of town, unwilling to yield to the loving heart of God as father? Or is it possible that Jonah, hearing the pursuit of the Lord, got up from his booth, went into the city of Nineveh, and started to get curious about how God could love these people even as much as God loved him? As Jonah ends with the unanswered question, I want to ask you a few questions as well. Today, instead of fleeing, will you follow? Today, instead of anger, will you experience the heart of God as a gardener who loves his creation and loves you? Are you willing to submit to the radical and costly call of a God who graciously loves Nineveh just as much as he loves you? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.